Well, thank you all for joining us uh, here at Every Nation Church, Las Vegas. Welcome once again. Uh, Pastor Roland and his wife Vilma and the family, they get back tomorrow from the from North Carolina. They had an incredible time at Every Nation School of Empowerment. They're going to bring the power back with them, and we can be excited about that. And uh, you can also be excited that our lead pastor will be back here next week, Sunday. Uh, but until then, we are going to continue together through the book of Acts. We've been journeying through the book of Acts to learn what we can from the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and see what the Spirit was doing in the days of the early church. We have learned from the Acts of the Apostles and other early church leaders. And in so doing, we've been able to take what we can and learn how to fulfill that which Jesus called us to do, and that is to be his witnesses in our Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the areas, the people surrounding us, and to the ends of the earth. Because we know that the mission of God is to be expressed through our own lives as we reflect Jesus, as we share Jesus, and as we help send the gospel to the ends of the earth. And one day, of course, we as a church will be a part of that as well as we participate in campus ministry. Shout out, Tam, what up? Everybody at UNLV, Mav, what up? Uh, world missions and church planting. And that's who we are as an Every Nation family. But today, as we continue through the book of Acts, we're going to switch it up a little bit. Last week, we talked about Philip. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, we talked about how we can follow God forward, even when it doesn't make sense. And if you are in a season of your life that doesn't make sense, I encourage you to go back to the website. The notes are still up there. But today, we're going to, like I said, switch it up. Because normally, I like to start off with a story from the past week, or maybe we'll go directly into the Bible. Or maybe we could even open up with prayer right away and ask God to speak and join us right away. But today... We're going to do things a little differently because today we're going to play a game. Now, if you don't want to play, don't worry. I thought of a way to include you. So if you don't want to play the game or if you're not comfortable at first and want to join us halfway through, whatever, that's cool. For you, Simon says, sit down. For the rest of you who are down brown and all that, Simon says, stand up if you want to play with us. Thank you. Thank you for your participation. Thank you for making sure I don't stand up here awkwardly playing Simon Says by myself. All right. For those of you standing up, Simon Says, raise your right hand. Simon Says, raise your left hand. And put your left hand down. Ah-ha-ha. It's okay. We're in church. You get grace. You get grace. Simon Says, put your left hand down. Simon Says, put your right hand down. Simon Says, put both hands up. Simon says, do five jumping jacks as best as you can. One, two, three, four, five. All right, Simon says, stop. All right, now pretend you're climbing a ladder. Hey, good stuff. Simon says, pretend you're climbing a ladder. All right, yeah, we're getting closer to God this morning. <laughs> work that body, work that body, make sure you don't hurt nobody. Okay, stop. <laughs> Simon says, stop. Now Simon says to play the air guitar. All right, cool. I, I can't even do it that much myself. All right, Simon says, stop, and you can sit down and be ready to receive the word. Thank you for playing with us this morning. Now, why on earth would we start with Simon Says? Because we're going to go to Acts chapter 8 again and see what the Bible says about Simon. Simon is another person we meet in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to go to the Word together, and I'll read about his life. I'll 
The Bible talks about him over the span of about 15 verses, so I'm just going to read the whole passage. This is Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 24, and then we'll get to prayer. Here's what the Bible tells us. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Verse 14, now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, Simon's prayer request expired about 2,000 years ago, so we're not going to pray for Simon today. However, we will pray that God would speak to us and show us what the life of Simon says. So would you join me as we pray? Let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you that you're here, that you're present with us, and that you're here to be our teacher and guide. So I ask, Lord, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts and our understanding to receive that which you have for us in your word. Teach us about the life of Simon. Show us our own lives in his, almost like a reflection. And show us if there's something that we can do to avoid ending up like him. In your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. So this past week as I was reading about Simon and studying his life, something fascinated me. And it was the fact that this former magician, Simon the magician, Simon the sorcerer, people use those different phrases, first century Chris Angel, whatever. Simon went through the motions. Simon looked like he was a Christian. He did everything that a Christian is supposed to do. The Bible told us in Acts 8 that Simon believed and he was baptized. And every other place in Scripture, when we see those words, they are used to describe conversion. So a plain reading of the text would have us believe that Simon became a Christian. So now the first century Chris Angel is Christian Angel. Now, Christian Angel continues with Philip. That phrase actually implies time. It implies consistency and continuance and perseverance. So Simon was probably a disciple of Philip to an extent. So this is not just somebody who shows up on Easter or something. He comes to service. He enjoys a kid's performance. He responds emotionally to the word. Then he goes outside and he eats tacos. And we never hear from him again. This is a guy who stuck around. It said he continued with Philip. He followed Philip around. So when Philip went and he preached the gospel, Simon was over there in the first, second, third row saying, hey, amen, that's good. Thank you, Bev. That was next. Stay on that. 
sorry, classic phrase in the college ministry. Even the, the good, good old grunt, the mmm, you feel it deep in your spirit, mmm. So Simon would have ummed. Then Simon probably had access to the Old Testament, so he would have read some scripture. He might have prayed. If Philip had a life group, he would have joined a life group. We started a life group this morning, by the way, in the lobby. Super cool. Simon is doing all of the Christian things. He looks like a Christian from the outside because he's doing all the things that a Christian is supposed to do. And many times that describes us. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You're supposed to be at church on Sunday. Congratulations. You are in the place where you're supposed to be celebrating with God's people. And we come here and we praise God with music. We raise our hands. We sing. We give. Many of the people in this church serve. Many of the people who serve, serve in multiple places. And those are all good. Don't stop doing those things. However, it's not just about what we do. It is about why we do it. This phrase, going through the motions, we understand it to have a negative connotation, don't we? And it implies that there is a disconnect between the things that we do and our reasons for doing them. It's like our hands are present in a task, in a place, but our hearts are absent. And for us in the present day and age, that might look like coming to church to make somebody else happy or to keep them from bothering you. And that was me. That was me in high school and in college when my mom gave me a choice and she said, hey, you can come to church with me or you can stay home, but if you stay home, you won't have a home because I'm kicking you out. I went to church for her. I was going through the motions, and I had a place to sleep on the weekends when I wasn't at school. But it's still going through the motions. It's possible to go through the motions when we serve out of obligation, as opposed to serving as a response to the love that we've already received from God. It's even possible to serve in ministry because you have a desire to increase your own influence, your own power, control or the approval or admiration that you get from other people. And that's probably what motivated Simon. Simon had underlying motives. And in order to understand this, we can think about Simon's life before he became a Christian. Because before Simon became a Christian, he had a magic show on the strip because he won America's Got Talent. So Simon's out here and he's impressing people and he says that he is somebody great. And the least to the greatest called him Great. And he even had a nickname, which was the power of God, which is called Great. And it's not a great nickname, by the way. I think Simon came up with it himself. If he had a nickname that said, hello, my name is, or one of the stickers, you know, he would have wrote Simon the Great. Everything about Simon's life had to be great, like Tony the Tiger. But this greatness was a tool. Because other things are motivating him. Simon was likely motivated by some combination of a desire to be powerful, to have control, and to gain approval. And this is why he is so captured by the idea of capturing people's attention. Simon just wanted to be great. His entire life was dedicated to this pursuit. His every waking moment meant to make himself greater in the eyes of people. This is what he was living for. These were his motives, and these were his idols. The magic was just a tool to serve his idols, those idols being personal greatness and power, etc. Fast forward. Philip comes to town. Simon sees wonders 
greater than he could ever perform. He sees that the power of God is greater than whatever power he was using. He gives his life to Jesus, and he goes through the motions for a bit, and he follows Philip. But then eventually, his old motives resurface, and he tries to buy the Holy Spirit of God. So Philip talks to him, but we can see now that Simon's old motives resurfaced. He still wanted power. He still wanted to have control and approval from people. The only difference was that instead of using magic to get it, he was trying to use God to get it. And our old motives can resurface from time to time in our lives. And I don't just say that theoretically, I say that from personal experience. I remember when I finally decided to truly follow Jesus in college. I, I wasn't content with being in church anymore. I wanted Christ inside me. So I started to follow Jesus. And I learned to get a little bit of approval from him. But over time, after going through small group and after getting involved and seeing that people would notice how I'd led group, then my old motive started to resurface. And I found myself wanting people to notice that my groups were growing or that I had started something new or that I did a good job speaking on stage the last week or that I showed up early that morning to set up the courtyard. I was using God to get approval. My old motive resurfaced. We have to be able to grow out of that. Here's one way to think about it, courtesy of uh, Ali's memory verse at school. <laughs> Ali came home from school this week, and she shared her memory verse, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Many of you know it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. She is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. And if you are in Christ, that applies to you. But I think we need to take a good look at the scripture because the word creation is the Greek word katesis. And katesis can also be translated as creature. So when we come to Christ, we are a new creature. And the classic analogy that is applied to this scripture is that of a caterpillar that eats and eats and eats. You guys remember that children's book, The Very Hungry Caterpillar? Yeah, anyway. So we transform. The caterpillar becomes a cocoon and it goes inside a chrysalis and it eventually goes through metamorphosis. It transforms and, and, and when it transforms, it emerges as an entirely new creature with a brand new nature. But if you've ever seen a caterpillar emerge from a chrysalis, you would have noticed that that butterfly either hangs out on the chrysalis or climbs up on top, on top of a leaf and it kind of just stays there for a little while. Because the caterpillar, although its nature has changed, and although it's now a butterfly, still needs to learn how to spread its wings and fly. It needs to learn how to live a new way. <clears throat> so when we as Christians come to Jesus, the Holy Spirit instantly takes the power of the gospel and regenerates our hearts. And he performs the greatest miracle of all and transforms our very nature from the inside out. As soon as we place our faith in Christ, we become a new creature. However, we need to learn how to live a new way. And that includes putting off our old sin and habits and mindsets and motives. So we've got to change our motives. And apparently, Simon the magician failed to do that. He couldn't make his old motives disappear. So he stops doing magic and continues on with the same motive. And this is where Philip rebukes him. He's very blunt with him. 
because you won't repent of sin until you feel the same way about it that God does. And the intent, the entire time, is on Simon's motives. Peter said to Simon in verse 22, repent that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Repent not only of your actions, but the motive that drives those actions. And here's where we see that Simon had a really interesting response to Peter because he said, pray for me to the Lord that none of what you said may happen to me. And that's actually the last we hear of Simon the magician in the Bible. We don't really know what happened to him. And because we don't know what happened to him, we are left with a lot of questions about Simon. Now, I'll let you sit in your questions for a minute while I drink some water and clear my throat. Just think about it. What, what happened? <coughs> Talk to somebody. The allergies, the summertime, it's wrecking me. Anyway, we don't know what happened with him. We're left with a lot of questions about him. And one of the questions could be, was his repentance in verse 24 genuine? Did he really mean it? Because on the one hand, Simon told, told Peter, hey, pray for me so that none of this happens to me. And the Greek word for pray there implies intensity. It's like, hey, plead to God for me. Beg God on my behalf. To use a word that we use in our church, intercede on my behalf that none of this stuff happens to me. If I walk up to one of our prayer teams and say, hey guys, intercede for me, yeah, I mean it. But on the other hand, and this is the part that's interesting, Peter told Simon, repent of your intent of your heart. And Simon's response is, you pray for me, Peter. So maybe Simon was unwilling to pray for himself because his pride was too great, because his devotion to his own greatness was too great. And at the end of the day, he wasn't willing to trust Jesus and his power and God's control and the approval that God gave him. Another question that we could ask about Simon was whether or not Simon's salvation was genuine. Maybe Simon genuinely believed, but his faith was shallow. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower is about different conditions of our heart and different responses we can have to the gospel. One of those responses is to believe, and yet, because our faith is shallow, it springs up quickly and then withers away because there's no depth to it. Maybe that describes Simon. Another possible outcome that Jesus talked about was that of a seed that begins to grow, and the weeds, the cares of the world, the thorns, begins to choke the life out of this new life and out of this new faith, and maybe that describes Simon. Because the weed of wanting to be powerful and great in the perception of other people might have taken away the faith that he was experiencing in his life in God. We don't know. Maybe Simon was genuinely saved and he later fully rejected Jesus in his heart. Maybe Simon was never made at all. I've seen people make that case. And the reason why I bring up these questions about Simon is that sometimes we take these questions and we apply it to other people. And we can even take these questions and apply it to ourselves. I've spoken to many people, 11 years of full-time ministry now, about 15 years of walking with Jesus. A lot of times we come to this place where we wonder, man, 
I'm still struggling with sin. I'm still struggling with doubt. I'm still struggling with fill in the blank. Am I even really a Christian? I want to encourage you this morning that if you've ever had the thought, am I really saved? The grace of God is bigger than all of your ongoing struggles. And the grace of God is bigger than any question mark you can give him. And even the fact that you would question your life in God is proof proof of the fact that you are alive in God. I can't find the source for this anymore, but I once read a modern-day parable in which we imagine, imagine with me, that we are all on a boat together, and the boat is at sea, and then a storm comes. And as the storm begins to rage and the waves go up and down and some of us start to get seasick, I hope no one is getting seasick just thinking about this, we notice, looking out into the water, that there are two people floating. One person is straining with all of his might to get to the boat, to stay above the surface of the water. And the brain is in his face making it hard to breathe and he keeps fighting. And eventually he gets closer but then a wave comes and it covers him, and it sends him down under the surface, and he disappears for a few seconds. And we're worried about this guy. But then his head pops up above the surface of the water again, and he takes a deep breath and begins to fight and shouts, Help me! Help me! Help! It's the first person we see. The second person is floating. Floating face down in the water. Now, we on the boat want to help, but we are limited in our ability to help because we only have one life preserver, one ring with one rope tied to it, and we can only throw it to one person. Who do you throw it to? The person who's fighting. Because that fight is proof that they are alive. The person who does not fight is more likely that they're not alive at all. If you're alive in Christ, then you'll see it as you fight. You fight for your faith. You struggle with questions. You have a hard time when you go through things and you wonder what God is doing, but you still want to love him. You still want to honor him. You still want to know him. That fight is proof of your life in Christ, and you don't have to doubt it anymore. So we ask these questions about ourselves, but we might also ask them about other people. When I first started attending church in college, I joined a college small group, and praise God, some of them are walking with God today, but some of them, I don't know. I don't know if they're walking with God, because the last I heard, they had stopped going to church. So I don't know the condition of my friend's heart with God, my first small group, the guys that saw me go through one-to-one, the people who saw me go from being somebody who attended church, hung over on Sunday morning, somebody who would serve on Sunday morning. There might have been a little bit of both in the middle, but all my past is gone. I don't know where my friends are with God, and I ask these questions sometimes. And then as the years went on, people would come, and they'd get excited, and they'd make a difference, and then they'd disappear for one reason or another. Maybe life happened. Maybe difficulty happened. Maybe they had questions and they couldn't get over them. Maybe there was a disagreement. Next thing you know, they're just not there anymore, and I don't know where they stand next to God. I've even asked these questions about my own dad. We don't have time to go through the whole story again, but most of you at this point know that my dad's in jail. And when he was arrested for committing robbery, I couldn't help but wonder, is he even a Christian? I think he is. I hope he is. 
And when we run into questions like this, we aren't completely helpless. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, you can know a tree by its fruit. So we should consider the fruit of people's lives. Fruit includes having Christ-like character, becoming more like Jesus. If we have more and more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in our lives that increases in quality and quantity over time as fruit should on a healthy tree, well, then there's a good chance this person is walking with God. If that person doesn't have that fruit, or that fruit looks a little bit suspicious, suspect, sus, as the kids would say, well, then maybe we shouldn't allow that individual to speak into our lives, but we could do our best to speak the truth in love. And after we do that, we entrust them and the condition of their fate of their condition of their heart and their ultimate fate to God. Because that's when it becomes God's responsibility. It leaves the realm of our responsibility and it goes entirely into the hands of God. And at this point of history, Simon's fate might only be known to God because we don't know what happened to him according to the Bible. Now, we can say with a relative level of confidence that he didn't become a leader in the church like he wanted to. Because Simon, as we can see from the fact that he captivated an entire city, this person is probably intelligent, and he has a level of charisma. He is a leader. Apparently, he's got cool sleight-of-hand tricks or something. It's, it's probably actual sorcery. But this person is gifted. And if this gifted leader had surrendered his gifts to God, we would have known about it. And instead, we see nothing about Simon ever again. So one of the other options that's more likely is that Simon faded into the background and disappeared with history. And the best case scenario of this gifted person is that he didn't have a negative impact on the church. Maybe he didn't further God's kingdom, but at least he didn't become an obstacle. As a pastor, I'll take that. That's, that's fine. It's okay. Just don't cast a spell on your brother in small group. But there's another option. The other option is that Simon actually became an enemy of the church and led people away from God. Unfortunately, that might be the most likely option. Um, early church fathers like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr actually recorded that Simon became a heretic. And if you're familiar with the term Gnosticism, it was an early cult. They believed, I believe, I think, the Gnostics believed that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, but only came in the spirit. It's heresy. Jesus came in the flesh. Justin Martyr, interestingly, who was also from Samaria, wrote down that Simon the Magician founded Gnosticism, which was one of the early big heresies that the church had to address. Now, whether or not that's true, or whether he simply faded into the background, I know that I don't want to be like Simon the Magician. I don't want the best case scenario for my life to be that I didn't stop people from coming to Jesus. So how do we learn from the life of Simon? And how do we avoid becoming like him? This is how we can learn to search our hearts. Simon, as a Samaritan, would have had access to Psalms, the book of Psalms, and one of them is Psalm chapter 139. It's a Psalm of David. It's one of the greatest Psalms of all time, actually. Just go read it later. It's magnificent. But this is how 
Psalm 139 ends in verses 23 and 24. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We should learn to partner with God's spirit and search our hearts. If Simon had done this, then I don't think he would have ended up wherever he ended up. We might have seen him again in Acts. We might have seen him referenced and called out and mentioned at the ends of Paul's epistles because he's making a difference in the church. So if we don't want to end up like Simon, we can learn to search our hearts. And there are different ways to do this. And this has really become an important part of my own walk with God. This contemplative spirituality, this reflection on myself so that God can make me less like the sinful person I am and more like his son, Jesus. So I want to share three questions that I reflect on that might have helped Simon, and I hope that you'll find at least one that can help you. Here are three questions for heart reflection. Number one, why do I feel the way I do, and how can I surrender to the Lordship of Christ? You might remember I mentioned this one last week, but I wanted to spend a little more time on it. But God gave us emotions for a reason. First of all, we have emotions because we're made in God's image, and God has emotions. So these are a good thing. And one good thing that our emotions can do is serve as an indicator in our lives. Now, all of us who have cars know that we have indicators in our car. I I hope you know that you have an indicator in your car. And the indicators tell us when something's wrong. You are losing tire pressure. You need to check your oil. It's time to service the engine. It's getting too hot. It's, It's getting too hot. Look out for that one. Look out for the heat indicator on your car. Pull over. Don't open your car. Side note. I went through a lot of car troubles in my days. Some people think car demons don't exist. I disagree. When your car overheats, you pull over to the side or you get somewhere safe, but don't open up your radiator cap right away because it's all boiling and the steam pressure is going to burn you. You let it cool off first, then you remove it with like a shirt or a rag that will block your hand from the steam, and then you can put some water in it if you haven't called somebody to help you already. Bunny trail done. Indicators. We have indicators in our cars, and our emotions can be like indicators in our hearts because our negative emotions can tell us when something's wrong. Now, they can't fix the problem. They just tell you about the problem. Don't rely on your emotions to fix the problem. But we need to learn how to intentionally identify our emotions. Peter told Simon, I can see that you're in the gall, the bile of bitterness. If Simon had admitted his bitterness before Peter and John talked to him, then maybe he wouldn't have gotten to the point of trying to buy the Holy Spirit. He could have talked to Philip. He could have talked to God. Instead, he's buying God or trying to. Let's not get to that point. Let's learn to intentionally identify our emotions. And one way we can do that is by talking to our own souls. Um, Not talking to ourselves, talking to our souls. I'll talk about the difference. You might have heard me uh, in the past refer to a book called Soul Keeping by John Ortberg. Um, I want to read a passage from it. This is from a passage called Keep Your Soul by Speaking to It. If you want to pick up the book, that's page 92. He says, we live in a world where we are encouraged to think that our feelings dominate our lives and that we are powerless over them. 
but even contemporary research indicates that the, the power God has placed in the soul to be master of our emotions. In one study, researchers presented subjects with pictures of angry faces. Half of the participants were told to simply observe the faces. The other half were instructed to label the emotion on each face. The simple act of labeling the emotion reduced its emotional impact on their moods. It also reduced the activation of the brain region associated with strong primitive emotion. Normally, when we are angry about something, we mutter under our breath, well, that sure was stupid, you big dummy. We beat up on ourselves or worse, on others. We may find temporary relief from that, but the soul still cries for attention. The next time you blow something, when you're frightened, when you're dissatisfied, instead of mindless self-talk, speak to your soul. Why are you afraid, oh my soul? At first, it may seem a little silly, but remember, you are the keeper of your soul. Only you. So we can identify our emotions as we speak to our souls. We can also do that through journaling. Peter Jardine is a licensed marriage and family therapist in the Every Nation family. And I remember him speaking at an online youth conference once where he talked about the power of journaling. And Peter said, um, when you write it out, you don't act it out. When you write it out, you don't act it out. And that process of journaling helps us to process our emotions so they don't master us. So try it out this week. Begin your week by just spending 1% of one day, that's about 14 minutes, journaling your thoughts. What drained you this past week? What's frustrating you? Reflect on your week and project on the next one. And then maybe consider writing about what God is teaching you in this season of your life. Write about what God is wanting you to learn. Write about how God is causing you to become more like Christ in a given situation. And as we do that, we'll be able to know what we're feeling, but also how to surrender it and act under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So this is one question for heart reflection. The second one is what motivates me? What motivates me? Our motives matter. God wants us to do the right thing with the right heart. We're the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and with all of your will, and with all of your emotions. Love the Lord your God with your all and all. And when we ask ourselves the question, what is truly motivating me? What we're doing is giving our hearts a little bit more to God each and every single time. When we ask the question, am I doing the right thing for the right reason? I remember wrestling with this one year. Shortly after we moved to Las Vegas, we went to a campus ministry conference in Oregon. And as we sat there in the conference, we were excited. Students were responding. God was moving. And I sat there in my chair thinking to myself, you know, I think I could do that. I think I could speak here. I want to speak here. And then those of you who know Pastor Mark Young, he's becoming a church planter in Tacoma. He instigates unknowingly and he leans over. He's like, hey, Matt. Matt, I think you could do this. I think you could speak here. So I'm excited about the possibility, but I realized later that night, I don't want to speak there for God's glory. I wanted to do it for my glory. I wanted it so people could see me and approve of me and pat me on the back and tell me what a great job I did. I wasn't loving God. It's loving myself. 
So we left that conference, and I came home. I just began to repent before God of this selfish motive, this motive that desired to put myself above God. And when we came back to Vegas, I kept preaching here. So what I did every single time I got up, and I do it every time to this day, is I take a moment to pause. And back then, I needed more moments to pause to say, God, this is for you. And even if you're the only person pleased with what I say, just be pleased. Be satisfied. Be honored by me. And every time I prayed that prayer and reflected on my motives and gave it to God, I began to love him a little more each time. So months pass by and I'm giving my heart to God and I feel like I've finally gotten over this roadblock. And as we're preparing to start raising money to go to the next conference, the pastor who organized that conference reached out to me. He said, hey man, can we talk? got on the phone with him later that day and he invited me to speak. And the very next year I was on the stage and I preached. People had good feedback and they said, hey, that was our favorite message. Thank you so much. You're my favorite speaker. And do you want to know what that did to my head? Nothing. Because God had freed me from slavery to my own pride. And God had changed and transformed my motive. I was able to stand on that stage and honestly give God all the the glory of God and his mission motivated me. So let's ask ourselves what motivates us as we go. One more question for heart reflection. Number three, who am I becoming? Who or what is helping me to get there? I wish Simon had paused and reflected on the fact that he was doing a lot of Christian things without becoming more like Christ. We want to be more like Christ, and we need help doing that. And that's where we get help from God's Spirit, who is our guide, our teacher, our counselor, our advocate, our paraclete. Everything that Jesus was to the disciples, the Holy Spirit wants to be for us. As people, no one is meant to follow God alone. We're meant to follow God in community. We can get help from things like books and podcasts. But we do need help. And the more we seek help to become like Christ, the more we search our hearts, the more we guarantee that we'll be less like Simon and more like Jesus. So what does the life of Simon say to us? The life of Simon says that motives matter. That the reasons why we do things matter. So Simon says, Search your hearts. Why do I feel the way that I do? And how can I surrender this and act under the Lordship of Christ? What motivates me? Who am I becoming? Let's search our hearts and ask God to lead us in the way everlasting. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you know the intimate recesses of our hearts. You know hidden things that we don't even know is there in ourselves. And you don't want us to end up like Simon. You want us to end up more like Christ. So Lord, this morning I pray that you by your Holy Spirit would illuminate the secrets of our hearts.
Help us to identify the reasons and the ways in which we're going through the motions, the reasons that motivate us to do so. And help us, Lord, to not just acknowledge it, but surrender it to you so that we can be renewed and restored in our motives and become more like Christ. So this week, God, I pray that you would help everyone here to learn to search their hearts and be restored to the fullness of the purpose you have for them while becoming the person you're calling them to be. In Jesus' name, amen.